0: Now, today is a very important day uh, for all of us in uh, the United States of America, and uh, we have our duty to do, as we learned about last week. And so I hope that you have either done so or are planning to do so. I plan to go after chapel and pick up Mrs. Ballard and us uh, go to the uh, polls and vote ourselves. Uh, and so as we do that, we have an impact. Uh, in fact, uh, I heard someone ask on a news channel about uh, 7.30 this morning, uh, they were interviewing someone, they said, well, does your vote really make any difference? Uh, there's so many people. And he said, well, of course it does, at least it, it will counsel out somebody else's vote. So so uh, it does matter where you go, and it does matter what you do. However, no matter the outcome of the election, There are two institutions of the three that God has ordained that are to move forward in their responsibilities no matter what the government does. Now, the government is an important institution, but as we have learned, God ordained three institutions, and we need to understand those in order for us to be uh, Christian citizens, citizens first of heaven, but then secondarily, citizens of the country in which we live. And so we have understood that he ordained the family, and that's the cornerstone, that is the first institution. And the other two would not even be able to exist if it wasn't for that. And in fact, uh, the home being the not only first in time, but the first in importance institution. But then we also learned that God ordained the government and gave it certain roles. And in the United States, we have the privilege of participating, and not only the privilege and the right to do so, but the responsibility to do so, as we learned last week. And now we come to that third institution. We have already studied what the church is about. As we have walked through this uh, semester together, we learned about the nature of that institution. We learned about its founding. We learned about its function or the purpose of the church, and we learned about the future of the church. But today, as we've done with the other two institutions, we come back and say, what is our personal responsibility in regards to this institution? We learn about personal responsibility in the home. We learn about personal responsibility in the government. But what is our responsibility in the church? Now, this is an important topic, it is actually a crucial topic. Uh, In fact, uh, many people believe that their only responsibility in the church is to be a member. And as long as I'm a member, that's all that really matters. And uh, we leave the rest of it to the preacher and the deacons and the elders and the trustees and the Sunday school teachers and those kinds of people. But the fact of the matter is, is God's word is very clear that every single believer has a responsibility in a local church. In fact, I want you to understand, as we noted before when we talked about it being one of the institutions God ordained, that there is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian that is not involved in a local church. It just does not happen. In fact, what we see the pattern in the New Testament is someone trusts Christ, they're immediately baptized, and they became a member. They are, they are numbered among a particular local church where they trusted Christ and were baptized. God's intent is for all of every believer to be involved in, and yes, a member of a local church, and thereby uh, carrying out the responsibilities that His Word gives us. Now, we could look throughout all of the New Testament and learn about many of our responsibilities, but this morning I want us to return to the book of Ephesians, and this time to chapter 4. Ephesians, as we learned uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, really is focused on the first three chapters being doctrinal in orientation, and then beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 6, very practical, saying that based upon this belief system... Based upon these these truths that we learned in the first three chapters, now this is how you should live as an individual. We looked at chapter five, the last paragraph, and chapter six, the first paragraph, to understand what our responsibilities are in relationship to that first institution, the home. But as we come to chapter four, the entire chapter is really about what your responsibility is as a believer in relationship to your local church. And in fact, it is a responsibility no matter what your title may or may not be in the local church. You may have the title of deacon. You may have the title of teacher. You may have the title of pastor or or elder or deacon or some other some other title, or you may have no title at all, but if you know Jesus as your Savior, God wants us to understand that we have responsibilities in the local church, and this whole chapter is about it. Now, I know that worries you a little bit, because last time we went a little bit longer than normal, and uh, you say, my goodness, if we're going to cover an entire chapter, we're in trouble. Well, let me give you a little bit of relief. We're not going to cover the entire chapter, although I would encourage you to do so on your own. But this morning we are going to choose from this chapter three concepts that we see that I believe are primary concepts of your responsibility related to the local church. So we're going to see the first one in the very first paragraph beginning in verse 1. Look there with me. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is so much packed into this first paragraph of chapter 4 that we do not have time to unpack it all this morning. But I do want you to notice an important truth in this text that relates to your responsibility as a member of a local church. And that is this, you have the responsibility to seek unity in the local church. You have a responsibility to seek unity in a local church, in fact, you notice the the ones in this text over and over. As we concluded uh, the paragraph, the reading of the paragraph, verse four: one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. We see this emphasis of one. He actually says in the in verse three that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is the concept that we're seeing in this text is saying, listen, as a member of a local church, you personally have the responsibility to seek the unity of the body of Christ. That is so, so crucial because you see, some people think it's the pastor's job to keep everybody unified. Some people think it's the deacon's job to keep everybody unified. But some people say it's the elder's job or the trustee's job, depending on the structure of your local church. But the fact of the matter is, God holds every single member responsible for the unity of the church. He tells us how to do that in this text. He says, first of all, In verse 1, I beseech you, in other words, I am begging you, essentially, I am instructing you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. One of the things that you already know about Northeastern Baptist College, even if this is your very first semester here, is that we emphasize that God has a calling for every single believer. God has a vocation for you. He has a calling for your life. For some, that is to be a church planter, or to be a pastor, to be a missionary on a foreign field. For others, that is to be a business leader. For some, it is to be a counselor, or to be a Christian educator, or a host of other things. But whatever God has called you to do, He has called you to do it for His glory, and particularly whatever your calling is, He intends for you to be engaged and involved in a local church, and to walk worthy of whatever calling He has placed on your life, and to do so in a very particular way. He describes how to do that in verse 2. He says, with lowliness, with gentleness, with suffering." now we say, well, a lot of the newer translation says patience, and that's true, that's what it means, patience. I kind of like suffering because that tells us what patience really means. You know, sometimes we think patience are temporary, but that's really not the idea. The idea is we're going to suffer long through this, and sometimes we have to suffer long. And then he says bearing with one another in love. So we bear with one another. We put up with one another. Wow. I mean, that doesn't sound too unifying, does it? Yes it does. Because it is acknowledging the fact that we are all sinners and we all mess up. And the people you go to church with will mess up and they will look at you and say, you messed up. And they'll be right because we all sin. Listen, there is not a perfect church on the face of the earth and there will not be until the rapture happens and God perfects His church. The fact is, is there are people in churches that you're involved in now and people in churches you will be involved in the rest of your life that you just connect with. And man, you guys are on the same page doctrinally. You're on the same page methodologically. You're on the same page in what you eat and when you eat it. I mean, you guys, are. you just say, man... This is one, we like the same things, we do the same things, and then you are going to find people in your church that are totally and completely different than you, and you're going to say, man, I just don't understand that. You're going to find people in your church that their personality rubs you the wrong way, and I promise you, though I know this is hard to do, I, I know it's hard to admit this, but there are people who will be rubbed the wrong way because of your personality and my personality as well. The fact of the matter is, is God's word is clear in Ephesians chapter 4. God's word is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. God's word is clear every time this is discussed, Romans chapter 12, that we have many members but one body. And all the members are not the same. Now, in Romans, in uh, Ephesians 4... In Romans 12, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that is speaking primarily about spiritual gifts. But it goes beyond spiritual gifts into personalities and backgrounds and everything else. And folks, there are some people that are just like you you're going to get along with, and there are other people that are just like you, so you definitely will not get along with them. There are people that are completely different than you that, man, you just make a connection and this is wonderful, and there are people that are so completely different than than you that you will not be able to stand to be in each other's presence for very long. But the fact of the matter is, is God says you have been called to a greater purpose and you need to set all of that stuff uh, beside you. And you need to work for the unity of your local church. That means that if you are going to exercise lowliness, if you're going to exercise gentleness, if you're going to be patient or long-suffering, if you are going to bear with others in love, it means that Jesus is first, others are second, and you are last. It means that you're willing to yield your idea. It means that you're willing to not have your way. It means that you're willing to prefer others over yourself. And listen, that is not a wonderful idea that is just out there we all hope for someday. That is actually your responsibility and my responsibility in the local churches in which we serve. I have learned over the years that it has nothing to do with other people in the church if I'm getting along. It has to do with me before God. Because no matter what they do or say, I can get along with them. I can love them. Several years ago, I was pastoring a church in another state. And I had a particular man who made it his, his life uh, goal to make my life miserable. He would show up at church uh, 30 minutes before Sunday school started because he knew I was, Sunday school started in our church uh, there at 9.30, and he knew I was out in front of the church every Sunday at 9 o'clock to greet everybody coming in. So he made sure that he showed up at 9.02 every Sunday, and he would come and he would stand right next to me, and for the next 30 minutes as people, I was greeting people, he would be speaking in my ear just trying to get at me. He was trying to get me in an argument. He was trying to make me angry. And guys, this didn't go on for a week or two. This didn't go on for a month. This went on for month after month after month. He would finish and, and I would we would go in and we would have a quick opening. Then Sunday school classes would go to their Sunday school class and I would go to my office and get on my knees and say, God, you gotta help me get my head back in place so that I can preach. It was miserable miserable. But God gave me a love for that man. He gave me a deep love for that man and he taught me to love him. He taught me to serve him and he taught me to entreat him as a father rather than attack him as an enemy. And when God called Cindy and I to New Hampshire We arrived on an afternoon. It was pouring down rain, so we were not going to unload our U-Haul truck. But we had a box up front, and I had pre-arranged for our phone to turn on. It was before too many people had cell phones. I had one, but not too many people had them in those days. Uh, And so I walked in with my box, and I plugged in my telephone. The first thing I did when we walked in the house and I had not been, I sat down on the floor waiting for some guys who were going to come and help us unload uh, and hopefully for the rain to quit. And I had not been sitting on the floor for five minutes and the phone rang. And on the other end, it was that man. And he said, Preacher. And I said, Oh, no, <laughs> he followed me here. I knew I shouldn't have given him up. No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that at all. I said, Yes, sir. And he said, I just want you to know I've been praying for you and want to make sure you made it. And I love you, preacher. And he hung up the phone. Now, if you knew that man, you know he never spoke on the phone. Never. He would tell his wife to call people for him. When he would come to somebody's house, he wouldn't get out and come up to their door. He'd come sit in their front yard and honk the horn until they come out to talk to him. And this man went out of his way to do that. And folks, I want you to understand that God did something in him and he did something in me for the unity of the church. And I want you to know that God intends for you to take the responsibility to do everything you can to build unity, to seek unity. In the church. But there's a second responsibility that I want to point us to do in this or two in this text. I want us to look at verse uh, 7 with me for just a minute, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I wish we had a lot of time and uh, those in systematic theology class would really like this. Uh, Because we get into verse 8 through 10, and there's a whole lot of theological discussion about it. But we do not have time today, so I want you to jump to verse 11. And it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Folks, you need to understand that you if you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a spiritual gift. God has given you at least one, and I believe probably more than one, spiritual gift that He intends for you to exercise. We have those listed in different places in Scripture. There are four primary passages. I've already mentioned three of them. The one we are in, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, Romans chapter 12, and then 1 Peter chapter 4, all speak to the issue of spiritual gifts in the church. Uh, no, Not one of those passages lists all of the gifts, but they all list some of the gifts. And as we come to this text, there are only a few that are mentioned. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, just divides all the gifts into two types, speaking gifts and serving gifts, and that's really all he does. He doesn't give us a listing of the gifts. But Paul, in these three texts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speak to specific spiritual gifts. And here, he only mentions a few. He says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. In fact, uh, many would argue that the best way to understand that phrase is pastor-teacher. Someone who is a pastor who is also a teacher, and, and that would be like the, the senior pastor of the church, the teaching elder, the teaching pastor of your church, uh, who is, has that special gift to be able to do that. Now, in this text, if you're not careful, you will run right over that and say, Well, I don't have any of those gifts, so this really isn't for me. Uh, and then if you went to uh, 1 Corinthians and you read those three chapters, you might say, well, I've got one of those gifts. Or maybe you would go to Romans chapter 12 and say, I, got, I have one of those gifts. But, but here I want you to notice a critical thing that is communicated in this text that is not communicated quite as clearly in the other three. He says he gave us these gifts, and we don't have time to go into what all those gifts are today takes us to make theology if you want to uh, talk about that more but in verse 12 is what i want you to notice he says for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ he says listen god gave these in particular apostles which we have none anymore look at look at acts chapter 1 and uh, you see qualifications for apostle, which nobody could meet today. I know it's become popular again to call people apostle, but it's unbiblical. It's just popular. But then secondly, not only apostles, but he said prophets. And then we have uh, evangelist, And that doesn't mean that they're the only ones to share their faith. If you think so, go take Professor Ferguson's evangelism classes. And then it says pastor, teacher. But now look what he gave all of those four. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen, it is never a biblical concept to say that some are called to ministry and some are not. The fact of the matter is, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've not only been called to ministry, you have been gifted to minister. And the pastor's job, the evangelist's job, the prophet's job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Listen, you need to understand, you don't pay somebody to do the ministry. Now, the pastor needs to do ministry because he's a member too. Uh, the evangelist needs to do ministry because he's a member too but the fact of the matter is the pastor and the evangelist and the prophet their job is to equip all the saints every believer to do the work of the ministry now you may be a, a business leader you may you may run a fortune 500 uh, company you, I talked to Joe and I talked to a guy last week who who for many many years ran a fortune 50. Uh, company and yet he understood through that entire time that that was just his his job but his ministry or but he had been given a ministry that he needed to be engaged in every day of his life. and the fact of the matter is is that no matter what your vocation is, no matter what your calling is in life, God intends for you, to be engaged in the ministry of the local church. You see, not only do you have the responsibility to seek unity in the church, but you have the responsibility to serve the purpose of the church. Now in case you have forgotten from a few weeks ago what the purpose of the church is, the function of the church, we saw it together in Acts chapter 2, it's very clear where the church is to evangelize the lost, edify the laity and exalt the Lord that's our job that's the function of the church and God intends for you to use your spiritual gift your natural talents and your personality to serve in the local church to help fulfill the purpose of the church and as you do that guess what happens the church of God is edified it is built up it's built up in two ways. It's built up numerically because we are using our gifts to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not built and only built up numerically. It is built up spiritually because we are using our gift to minister to one another within the local church in which we are engaged. That is God's intent for you. You, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God holds you responsible and accountable to seek the unity of the local church and to serve in the local church. That is why at Northeastern Baptist College, all of our students, not just our ministry students, but all of you are expected to find a church to go to and to serve in faithfully while you're a student at this school. Because we want you to understand that that is a responsibility that God has given you whether you're a student or whether you're a graduate it doesn't matter that's what God wants you to do your entire life but then there's a final responsibility I want us to see in this text there are many things that we could look at as I said but for time we won't but I want us to jump all the way down to the end of the chapter and look at verses 31 and 32 as we do we're going to see that God not only expects you to seek the unity of the church, not only does he expect you to serve the purpose of the local church, but he expects you to safeguard relationships in the church. Let me say that again. He expects you to safeguard relationships in the church. This goes beyond just seeking unity. We can seek unity, and we should, but this goes even beyond that, and he concludes the chapter almost where he began, but in a very more specific way to say, listen, you shouldn't just seek unity that is surface, but you should be engaged in safeguarding relationships within the body of Christ. How do you safeguard a relationship? Well I'm glad you asked, because verse 31 and 32 tell us, look what it says. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Ooh, that hurts. Most of us would rather wallow in our bitterness towards others. Listen, if it has not happened, mark it down at will. Somebody in church will hurt you they will say something mean to you whether they mean it or they don't they will say something they don't even they don't even know what what they're saying but it will hurt you deeply maybe it will be on the tail end of a really really tough week where you are already just feeling like that man the whole world's falling apart and I'm going to church just to just to get refocused and you get there and the first thing that someone says to you, hurts. And you say, that's not what I came here for. Listen, I know so many Christians who have left church or left the church they were in for another church or continually hop around looking for churches trying to find some church where nobody's going to be mean to them. And I know some who have never left the church. They stay in it, but they are bitter to the core related to certain people in that congregation. He says, listen, put it away from you. Bitterness can be internal and never expressed. You can smile to the person that you're bitter towards and shake their hand and say, good to see you this week. But inside, the bitterness that you have towards them is eating you alive. But wrath comes out. Anger will either turn to wrath or bitterness... If you don't deal with it properly. Clamoring at each other. Evil or speaking evil of one another. Having malice towards one another. All of this, he says, put it away. Repent of it. Get rid of it. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Listen, that wasn't a criteria here. Can I just burst your bubble a minute? It is never the person who offended you's responsibility alone for the way you react to that. Never. If you offend someone, you have a responsibility before God to go try to make it right. But if somebody offended you, you have a responsibility before God to make it right. In fact, if you will go back and look at Matthew 18, which is so often quoted, we focus on the first issue in Matthew chapter 18, which is if your brother offends you, go and tell him alone. And that's a good practice I wish people would do instead of going and telling everybody else in the church about the problem. But go to the person alone. In fact, when someone comes to me as a leader in a church and says, you know what so-and-so did, I said, well, did you talk to him? Now if they didn't, yes, there is another step to get people involved in that. Properly should be the leadership of the church. But have you attempted to work it out yourself? But we focus on that text. But the very, uh, just a few uh, uh, verses down, Jesus flips that around and says, But if your brother sins against you, 70 times 7 forgive him. And he doesn't say if he comes and grovels a while. He doesn't say if they earn your forgiveness. Listen, if it's it's earned, it's not real forgiveness. Because forgiveness is bearing the pain of the issue. And that's what he tells us to do in verse 32. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted towards one another. Forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Let me ask you a question. What did you do to earn God's forgiveness? Hmm. If you think you did something to earn His forgiveness, we need to talk afterwards. Because you're not saved. You're headed to hell if you think you earned God's forgiveness. Because the Bible's clear, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. That's the wages of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. Forgiveness is something that we cannot earn and do not deserve. Now, notice what he says as God in Christ forgave you. How did God forgive you? Because Jesus took the pain of your sin and of mine. Forgiveness is not saying the pain's gone. Forgiveness is not saying it don't hurt anymore. Forgiveness is not saying they, they, they asked me enough. Forgiveness is not even saying they've changed. Forgiveness is saying you hurt me, but I forgive you. I'll bear the hurt and release you from it. How do you do that? It's impossible in your own strength. It only comes, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, earlier in this text. It tells us that the key to all of these practical things, he's telling us in 4, 5, and 6, is that we be filled with the Spirit of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in your life as you submit to the Lordship of Jesus and the power of the Spirit that enables you and empowers you to forgive like God forgave you. You don't forgive somebody because they earned it or deserve it. You forgive people because Christ has forgiven you. That's why we forgive. And listen, it is a joy when you forgive. It's like a a weight that you've been carrying maybe for years, maybe for moments, the longer you have held bitterness and anger and wrath towards people, the heavier the weight is on your life. But when we forgive, it's like a gigantic weight is just lifted off of us. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. If we will forgive we will be able to seek the unity and we will be able to serve the purpose of the church. But if we don't, if we don't, if we don't safeguard our relationships in the church, then we will never be as effective as we should be in the other two responsibilities in this text. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Listen, we have a responsibility to the government, and we're going to do that, and we have no idea the outcome. We may may know the outcome in the morning. We may not know it for weeks. We have no idea what's going to come around the corner. But I want to tell you today, the more important than the government is the church and the home. And if you and I will fulfill our responsibilities in those two areas, we will impact the nation. Because you see that the ultimate thing, we, we need to take stand and we, we need the right kind of leaders. But Congress will never save America. The president will never save America. As important as Supreme Court nominees are, and they are crucial in this country, a Supreme Court judge or the whole host of them will never save America. The only thing that will save this land is a spiritual awakening. And we will not have a spiritual awakening in this land until we have a revival in the church. But when we get right with God, God will use us to impact those around us. And the most important thing, it's important to vote. Go vote. Vote twice like Joe. It's important for us to vote. But the most important thing we can do is carry out the God-given responsibilities in the home and in the church. That is the greatest impact you will ever, ever have in life. So I want to encourage you today that as a citizen of heaven and as a citizen of the United States, it is crucial that you take serious the responsibilities that God has given you in the local church. You need to seek the unity of the church. You need to serve the purpose of the church. And you need to safeguard relationships in the church. If you've not done that, just take the quietness of these moments and say, Lord, here's where i failed. Forgive me. And He will. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then say, Lord, empower me. Help me to be filled with Your Spirit. Help me to walk in Your Spirit. And God, work through my life to cause me to fulfill the responsibilities you've given me in the home and in the church. And God, touch others through me fulfilling those responsibilities. And Listen, today, if you're here and you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, maybe you've been trying to earn His forgiveness as we talked about a few moments ago, then listen, right now is your opportunity to settle it. To realize that forgiveness isn't deserved and it isn't earned. It's a gift of God. And you can go to Jesus right now. He himself said, He that believes on me has everlasting life. He that trusts me. Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting yourself. Turn from trying to earn forgiveness. And just trust Jesus and who he is and what he did for you. As he died on the cross, was buried and rose again for your sins. Just tell him in the quietness of your heart, Lord, I know I've sinned. I know I, I don't deserve your forgiveness. I can't earn it, but God, I believe that you died for me. And so right now, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I trust you. Listen, if you've done that for the first time in your life today, you it really made sense this time and you understand that. Get a hold of one of your professors or one of your fellow students and let us know today so that we can rejoice with you. Come let me know. I want to rejoice with you. If you're... Listening to the podcast later today on, online and you hear that message and you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, reach out to us here at the school and let us know. Write us an email so we can rejoice with you because that's the most important decision you can make. But if you know Jesus, then fulfill your responsibilities at home, in the church, and yes, your responsibilities in the government as well. Father, we just come before you today, and we thank you for the way your word teaches us and instructs us. Father, I pray that you would help us to carry out the responsibilities you've entrusted to us for your glory and honor, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.